everybody. Welcome or welcome back to the Idea to Impact podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Thomas Kent, who works at A&M's IBT campus. And not only are you going to hear Jack and I get schooled on vascular neurology, but you're also going to hear Dr. Kent's story of how research when you are dealing with drugs or with therapeutics may be a little bit different from the guests that we have in the past, especially in terms of how long it can take to get things from the lab to market. So if you are in the chemistry or in the medical field, this is a podcast that you're going to want to listen to because his story is really wanting to speak to you. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Idea to Impact podcast, where we discuss all things innovation, technology translation, and commercialization. I'm Dr. Beth Duermeyer with the A&M Innovation Partners. I am here with my lovely co-host. Jack Manheyer. And today we are talking to someone whose path or journey from idea to impact looks a, a little different from our previous guest, but then again, I think I have said that about every guest. <laughs> you know, with the exception of Mark, because he was our first one. But that is what is so cool about what Jack and I do. Almost no no two entrepreneurs or inventors have the same story. So we have uh, this week we have Dr. Thomas Kent, who is the Robert H. Welch Chair Professor of um, Texas A&M's Institute of Biosciences and Technology. Let me say IBT for short, because that is a mouthful. Um, and they are down in Houston. So. Um, you will find out uh, as you listen today that Dr. Kent's story is unique because of the area that he works in. So he's a neurologist, um, specifically in vascular neurology, and as well as being a teacher and a researcher. And because he's working with drugs, we hear that actually um, that really influences what his story looks like in terms of how long it can take to get an idea from uh, from the research all the way to impact. So. We're going to get things started. Thank you, Dr. Kent, for being here with us. Happy to be here. And why don't you start by telling us um, how you got into doing research, especially after attending medical school to be a physician, what got you into research? Well, so as you said, I'm trained as a physician um, and a neurologist, specifically a vascular neurologist, which means I take care of... Uh, uh, mostly patients who've had a stroke, and there are other diseases that involve uh, problems with the blood vessels. Uh, I also spent several years in basic science laboratories, um, and so now I do research. First, I trained in a field called basic and clinical pharmacology, which is the way study of the way drugs work, uh, and then also how they behave in humans. And then later I trained in a field called electrochemistry, which is how substance reacts with each other's by exchanging their electrons. This is a really fundamental process in biology and so ends up being important in diseases as well. Um, and also invent things. I invent things that I see there's a need for in the clinic and uh, use my training and colleagues to come up with a solution. Um, but I didn't go into medicine to do research. My father was a really busy clinician, and I thought that was a great life. Um, but then I was approached actually during my psychiatry rotation by the chairman of psychiatry. I'm still not sure why he 
pick me. He must have seen something in me um, that he thought he could exploit. Uh, and he passed this really crazy idea by me and um, pretty much convinced me to participate. And can you tell us more about this, this research study that you were recruited to help out with? So this first study, um, so it was a really crazy idea. Um, he was uh, very famous in uh, study of alcoholism. Uh, mostly in genetics, but he also had other ideas about what was going on. And he had this theory, uh, it's called state-dependent memory, that uh, people that learn something under typically drugs of abuse, including alcohol, um, actually tend to remember it better if they're intoxicated again. Huh. And they also would forget if they sobered up. So his idea was that all these bad things that happen to people while they're intoxicated, they just forget them when they sober up. And so how could he test that? Well, you can test that, he thought, by um, getting a group of people that have different drinking histories um, and uh, get them intoxicated, train them something, and then bring them back the next day and either take the test sober or take it um, with alcohol and see what they do. And so that was the study. And basically it involved recruiting medical students uh, with a range of drinking histories. And it was a little bit surprising what their range was. Um, and then I would on Friday night uh, serve them drinks, either a little bit on top as a placebo or a full drink, uh, give them these tests and uh, wait for them basically to be safe to go home uh, which is several hours in this uh, testing room with 10, 15 uh, medical students, um, and then bring them back the next day. And most of them came back the next day. And we did this several times with all the different permutations of the, uh, of the uh, alcohol. Um, and it was just an amazing, incredible experience. They, um, I'm sure you really had to twist their arms to get them. You did not, did not. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of volunteers. Um, and as usual, some upset when they got the placebo, but you know, they quickly figured out you know, which ones were real and which ones weren't. Um, but it was amazing to see their personalities change. I mean, some became just outright belligerent, others just really pleasant. Um, I caught one trying to do you know, very odd things to my desk. <laughs> Um, and you just have to sit there, serve them drinks, and record, right? You, record you just got to observe and, re and report, right? Record, tests, <laughs> actually give them tests, encourage yeah, them. We're doing a reality TV series, right? <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Yeah. So, so anyway, that went on for several months. Wow. Um, and uh, um, when it was over. Uh, put the data together, learn statistics, analyze the results, and sure enough, it was true. They really did uh, remember better um, from intoxication to intoxication than if they took the test uh, sober. Now, overall, of course, they did worse than if they learned it sober. Right. So everybody, anybody listening to this or watching this, do not think that you'll learn more in school by getting drunk first. That's not what was yes. happening, right? No, <laughs> film this and then go back and if Dr. Kim can create a time machine and we can go back to like college level Dr. Bat 
who, you know, somebody, somebody misinterpreted this study a long time before I got to college, but, you know, cause we always joke, oh, you know, I'll just, you know, I'm tipsy when I studied, I'm just gonna be tipsy when I, when I take a test, cause it, cause it works, you know, that's what the science says. Well, I, I hope they didn't use this study for that. <laughs> well, somebody did because I, you know, some urban, you know, just know that you're part of some urban legend. Yeah, I heard you learn better if you're drunk. You yeah, know, the you sound just, bite. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, the drunker the better. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that got um, you into the research part of it. Is that your was your first kind of full on research assignment there? So that was it. That was it. And um, then they approached me actually to uh, keep doing research. Um, that was the uh, heyday of um, early days of brain imaging. Mm. Um, and, and at that time, there were a couple psychiatrists, uh, mostly neurologists, but a couple psychiatrists as well that were working on the actual methods to image the way the brain functions. Um, and it turns out what they're really measuring is the reaction of the blood vessels. Oh, um, interesting. So it, it, every organ in the body, when um, it's exercised or worked, the uh, blood supply to it goes up. Um, that can actually cause some swelling. That's why you rest your arm when it's bruised and swollen, because it'll just get worse if you, if you move it. That's true for the brain as well. So if I'm hearing something, is there more blood coming to the part of my brain that is in the oral part of, of am, I hear, am I thinking about this right? Absolutely. That's okay. Absolutely right, yeah. And it, it, it can, under bad situations, actually steal it from areas if you're, oh. if you're marginal blood flow. So right, this, right. this whole thing was discovered, just an incredible, um, incredible patient had an abnormality of blood vessels called a vascular malformation that, that has these way too many blood vessels and should be there. Um, and it happened to be in the vision part of his brain, which is in the back. And what brought him to the doctor was that he would open his eyes and he would actually hear whooshing huh. in his head. And he correlated himself, knew something was wrong. The doctor gives a very famous neurosurgeon, actually only one or two neurosurgeons at the time that could even begin to deal with this problem. Um, and sure enough, they made this link between metabolism and blood flow. Hmm. And right now, that's the phenomenon that we use to measure functional brain imaging. And so this was all just beginning, which led me to wonder how that happens. How is that linked? How are those two things linked? And then that led me to study blood vessels. And then once you're studying blood vessels, you study the abnormalities of blood vessels, and that's stroke. And so that's how I became hmm. a okay. So this isn't the first time I've heard a story like this although I'm not sure if it, it is at all normal, where you have a, a, a patient who, for some reason, either you know, has some abnormality, I don't want to call it a mutation, but some abnormality, but because of that abnormality, you know, medical science is able to make progress. They're able to find something out be only because somebody's a little weird in some way, right? Yep. If they were just looking at all normal people, they wouldn't necessarily be able to make these connections. Is that kind of right? Does it, you see that every once in a while? 
that's a really good insight. And so that kind of, that's this relationship between cause and effect. So when okay. something is normal, in, especially in humans, you actually have to do something to it to see if it causes something. It's easy okay. to do in the laboratory, but it's harder to do in humans. But then when a person comes to you with something abnormal, that's the abnormality. And so you can make the, you know, if you're, if you're aware enough and observe enough, you can make that link. Um, yeah, that's absolutely the way progress can happen. Unfortunate, you know, for the patient, right? Um, it's not too serious a condition, but yeah, that's absolutely right. Wow. But so you some of it's luck. I mean, some of it's just yeah. somebody happens to go to the right doctor who happens to know, hey, it's, you know, it's fluid in the ear. Don't worry about it. No, it might be something to do with the vision, the vision mm -hmm. center of the brain. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It's amazing. And, and just the, it always boggles my mind just how many people don't go to the doctor. And so, you know, sometimes there's things that could be going on and we'll just never know about it because people, you know, have fears of going to doctors and, you know, um, I'm not one of those people because I have a team of doctors that I like to go through <laughs> all of my abnormalities. Um, but you mentioned the word stroke and, um, I think I kind of had like a misunderstanding of what stroke was for a long time. I, I always heard stroke and I thought like, I kind of always heard it associated with the word heart attack or, so can you tell us a little bit more about strokes and like what that is exactly and what about strokes like do you work on uh, most of the time? Yeah, because just to, to, to riff on that a little bit, I, I always thought, and I think this might be the popular understanding that if my kids are really stressing me out and I'm on my last nerve, you know, I'm going to start twitching and then part of my face is going to fall down. Is that at all right? Or is that just uh, yeah. urban legend? That's pretty rare. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like really bad stress rarely can do that. Um, it probably does it mostly um, through like a super high blood pressure. I mean, it has to be just super high to do right. that. So again, very abnormal, right? Really, I mean, off the wall. Yeah. And the, the, that, that rain, and that happens. I mean, it happens so, so infrequently that when it does, somebody actually reports it. Um, uh, because it's really not, uh, not something that happens that often. Yeah, stroke, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I'm so stressed out, I'm having a stroke. Right. And that that is a common use of the of the term, but what it actually means is the blood. So the brain has a lot of blood vessels that supply different parts of it, and a stroke is when one of those blood vessels is blocked or it ruptures. Oh. Uh, mostly, it's blocked, and it's blocked by either a clot that's forming there because you had hardening hardening of the arteries, or uh, it comes from somewhere else. I'm sure you've seen ads for medicines and devices for atrial fibrillation because it comes from the heart and goes right up to the brain. Um, so some of those are just like a heart attack. A heart attack is a plaque that where clots form because it's so abnormal in that area. And, and about a third of strokes are due to that. You know, you heard carotid artery can happen and other vessels. Um, but then about two thirds of them are other things and they all get treated differently. Um, they all get, we do different things to prevent those, to treat them when you're having a stroke is, is pretty much the same. You, you somehow, when it's a 
when it's a blockage, you try to get rid of that blockage, either with medicines or a device that pulls it out. Um, and so we, that's how we treat stroke now. Um, the, the, that's the good news is it does improve outcome. The bad news is that you know, maybe 10% of people uh, actually get those treatments. Either they get there too late and the brain is just too injured or they have other problems or their clot is somewhere that it, 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 you can't get to it. And so a lot of patients, now some of them get better on their own, fortunately, um, but stroke is still the leading cause of disability in adults and, the, and way up there in the top four in terms of causing death. So it's still a big problem. And so there's a need. There's a need to find ways to improve the ability of the brain to survive that. And just so I understand, because I, I do under, let's just take the clot, for example. If the, is, the, is the reason that it might cause disability in me if I have a stroke and a, and a clot um, because my brain went for too long without blood flow? In other words, if I get the clot out fast enough, it'll, you know, I have a better chance of recovering. Um, or is it one of those things where if I get a clot and I have a stroke, that part of the brain kind of dies, you know, like dying on the vine, and I, I never will get better. How does that? How does that work? What causes the disability? I guess. Yeah. So, so a stroke is different than say your heart stops. You know, when okay. people giving CPR, then, then pretty much none of the brain is getting perfusion unless the CPR is is good and get in time, you get there um, and restart the heart. Um, and, and that way, you know, cells really just have a few minutes. And some survive longer than others, which is why people sometimes can keep breathing after, you know, after a cardiac arrest. But, but, um, uh, but stroke is, a, is a pretty much a single blood vessel. And we're fortunate in a way that we have lots of these blood vessels and they mm -hmm. interact with each other. And so for a while, uh, they can actually supply enough blood um, that uh, your brain can survive. There, there will be an area that has no blood, and it, it will, you know, it won't survive, and that's where your disability comes. And then that okay. spreads out. The amount uh, of injured tissue spreads out over time. See. You can actually see. see this in, in models of stroke. You can see that spreading out. So that's why it is time. Time is important for that. So, so people who have those strokes that causes that kind of disability, just over time, they're just going to get worse. Is that is it? over the first few hours? Once okay. it establishes, they typically they'll get worse because there's some swelling, just like anything that's bruised. There's swelling, and then that actually occasionally can be fatal. Okay. Um, and then once that passes, so they'll they'll be a stable. Thing and usually happens over the first day or so. Okay, um, I thought maybe you said like over time. I wasn't sure what like how what time the whole brain becomes dead over hours. Yeah, I'm thinking more like long term of months to years. So at, at some point it stops spreading, right? It stops spreading because that blood vessel will only supply a a, a certain part, okay. and it's that part that if you don't save it. Okay. the whole thing will eventually so it might be a little wedge it might be a you know a large part like whole side 
Um, so it depends on which blood vessel and the ability. And so my research is to try to give time to that brain to survive, to right. find what's called neuroprotection. And there's a lot of people doing, doing this. Um, up till now, it hasn't worked. There have been a large number of these studies in humans and pretty much they've all failed. Um, and so, you know, this is, this, this is an important enough subject that uh, um, we've taken it on. But you said uh, it's failed in humans, and I know we're going to get more into this. So that means it's already been through several rounds of animal trials. And so I think you mentioned this in our previous session, but how long typically does it take to get to where you're actually putting things into humans? So, I mean, it can take uh, 10, 15 years is not unusual to get to humans. And, and even after all of that and, and hundreds of millions, if not, you know, billions of dollars, um, you get failure and you get failures after failures. Um, and so people question the whole concept. They question, you know, how we do it. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, you have to sort of do that. You have to go back and say, well, what, what did we do wrong? Or what, you know, what is the, what is, is the idea wrong? And, 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 you know, that stuff happens all the time. Um, and, and I think we can get into more, more specifics on how that happens. Especially. So the current state of the science that if I were to have a stroke, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing, if I were to have a stroke, and I were in the 10% that could be helped, there's some type of de the device or uh, something you can put up there and grab that clot and, or fix it or do something with it. And then the 90%, because it's such a large amount, they're the ones that still need people like you to try to find solutions. Am I summarizing it half correctly at least? Yeah, it's pretty close. Um, okay. So there's medicines to bust up the clot. Okay. A risk of causing bleeding elsewhere, they might actually bust up some good clots and right. some bleeding elsewhere. But in the end, overall, people benefit. And then there's a slew of new devices. Technology's just been incredible. Okay, that can remove that clot, um, and you may not restore completely. You may still have to, you know, that area that had no help from its neighbors, right. neighbor blood vessels. So you, you know, hopefully you'll, you have, you saved enough that you get better over time. Um, but, you know, even then it doesn't always work, but there is, I mean, there's just, I've seen just amazing and incredible recoveries with these devices uh, that you would never have seen five years ago, 10 years ago. So, so the brain's pretty amazing because it has, um, I don't know if they're necessarily redundant systems the way you're describing them, but that help from the neighbors uh, and, and then also it partitions it off that if something's going to die, we're going to make sure it's only a localized spread, right? Am I, right. Am I hearing that correct too? Yeah. So that while that, that the part that does die, if it's a critical part, it could be very, very bad for the human. Right. But the brain as, as it's designed is trying to save as much as it can if something like that goes wrong, right? It seems to be doing that. Okay. Um, these, we call pretty amazing. It. Wow. Yeah, we call these actually watersheds. If you watch two sprinklers, you know, they oh, do yeah. their own territory. Yeah. But they also do their, they overlap. A little bit, yeah, yeah. 
It's that overlap. That's exactly how the brain is, is designed. Wow. Um, My brain's a big yard with a bunch of sprinkles. <laughs> I love it. I can yeah. see it now. <laughs> and so you're at that, that, that threshold of trying to figure out uh, what to do next, you know, with the, the large population that, that mm -hmm. still need help. Uh, you know, what are, what, are you, what are you working on uh, as far as the, the, the areas? And I'm sure there's a story behind it, too, as, as far as how you got into it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I obviously you're making some, some contributions in this area. What are those? So the first contribution was actually a way to measure the blood flow and to measure this spread. Huh. Um, and, and that was done with very early days of, of MRIs um, in various kind of stroke models. And we actually made the we actually made the first way to measure blood flow, um, non-invasively with MRI, hmm. and combine that with another technique which can measure injury. And and we saw that you could you could see how much blood flow was missing, and how much you still had to survive. Um, and that now is actually the gold standard for telling when you come in with a stroke if you're eligible for this treatment. Wow. Not everyone has the fancy technology. So uh, you know, now you can use CAT scans to do it and other things to do it, but it's still, you know, compared to this, to this method. I mean, if it's all gone already, then, you know, why right, risk right. either the drug or the, or the intervention? Um, so that's more on the diagnostic realm, but, but I use this electrochemistry knowledge um, to measure something we all uh, know about, and those are free radicals or oxidative stress. We all know about antioxidants. So I, I know about those words, but I now that you're saying them, I'm not really sure I understand what what they what they are. So free radicals, I, I picture some type of little things bouncing around, and they're doing damage, like a, a video game or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, what what are those? Just for those who don't aren't sure what they are. Right, so free radicals can come from a lot of different substances, but the most common one that we deal with is from oxygen. Oh, so okay. the reason oxygen is, is, is just such a great thing for life is that it reacts so easily and it exchanges these electrons, but in the, in the process, it actually ends up in a really unstable state. Hmm. And that unstable state, if you, we have tons of protective enzymes and proteins in our body to protect us from that. It's happening all the time. It's mm -hmm. happening all the time. And um, we're, we're adapted to that. And so it happens, it does its thing, and then something comes along to get rid of it. Gotcha. So we're functioning normally. But as we get older, um, little bits of damage start accumulating. And right. people have theorized that's related to aging. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons lots of people take antioxidants. So they're supplementing what your body normally has. Gotcha. And sometimes they're the things your body normally uses. We, you're just taking more of it. Vitamin okay. A, I mean, vitamin C, vitamin E, those are, those are you know, things people take. Well, so your body's in a constant battle with oxygen, even though it needs constant, constant uh, <laughs> re-leveling, re right? Okay. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Constant. Always amazes me what our human body does. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah. It is. It is incredible. You know, there's this whole whole world out there of how we ended up with oxygen and 
and you know how how it's it's just a really interesting um it's a really interesting field in itself i guess if you're interested in that mm -hmm. um but um when you have pathology so and stroke is a great example of that you overwhelm the mm -hmm. thing you have to protect you normally gotcha they're just overwhelmed they can't okay. function and so this stimulated, so, so, I, so one of my other early inventions was a way to, to measure it in the living um, uh, body. So you measure it through electrochemistry, you can measure these radicals coming off. And sure enough, you see these huge bursts and you see them for a long period of time. You see them, you know, hours and, and even, you know, a day later, it's still happening. And so, you know, the idea is that that's still there. Maybe you could help even a little bit with, right. with some kind of antioxidant. And so there were tons of studies on various antioxidants. Um, they all failed. Mm -hmm. Every one of them failed. Um, the last one actually was a death knell for big drug companies to do stroke studies because they the estimates are half a billion dollars they spent on this drug. Wow. Um, and they thought it looked good. And then it just, you know, when they did the, the definitive. Yeah, yeah, right. Failed. And so um, there was, you know, everybody's thinking, well, maybe the whole theory's wrong. Mm. Maybe it's not involved. Um, and so what we did is we, we knew it's there. We knew it's happening. And we just didn't buy that, that it's not important. So your theory is still that the body's overwhelmed, and so therefore it's not there to battle and, and balance out the free radicals from the oxygen intake, right? And that's, that's what you're trying to balance back up? Gotcha. I'm with you. Okay. And so the bursts the burst of free radicals are, you're seeing those after somebody has a stroke, correct? Right. You're seeing it both after they have a stroke, mm -hmm. and then you're seeing it when you remove the blockage hmm. oh. now oxygen is rushing in you've consumed all your protective enzymes gotcha and now is that really even good you know right 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 yeah so so we're convinced and 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 like we do in 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 research you you, you start you have a hypothesis and our hypothesis mm -hmm. was well maybe our drugs aren't any good Right. And that's what we reviewed every single antioxidant that's been tried. And sure enough, when you look at all of them together, they're just not strong enough. Mm. They just, I mean, if you had a continuous infusion of gallons of it, you know, maybe then it, they would have worked, but you know, who can tolerate that's okay. just able to Right. Yeah. So about this time, um, I was really close at my previous institution to Rice University, um, and there was a lecture on um, nanomaterials as antioxidants, and so I attended it, and it was incredible. Now, these are not biologists. These are chemists, mm. and the story of how this came to be is, is really pretty incredible. But at that, at that talk, these were thought to be antioxidants, you know, just 
tens of thousands of times more able to do this than any of the small drugs or proteins or anything that anyone had come up with. And these antioxidants are not naturally occurring. They're like created or. Yes. Okay. Right. So but this. It's not, like, it's not like Iron Man and Tony Stark where like little nanobots are doing things, right? It's, or are you making nanobots or. There are nanobots now. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. They're really net Awesome. Jack's best guess yet. There's nanomachines that can tear up cells. There's nano. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is that I created though? Is that is that what is that what you mean by they're created? They're synthesized, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So this field began. um, It's actually pretty old field, but but mostly in theory, and then a. A, a group of scientists, including two at, at Rice, uh, Smalley and Curl, um, actually created the first carbon, um, the smallest carbon material possible. Um, they called them Buckminster Fullerenes. Okay. Um, a lot. Yeah. They, they, Buckminster Fullerene was an architect who created the geodesic dome, geodesic dome which is okay. a cosohedral and it also looked like a soccer ball when you looked at it so the short is buckyballs that's easy to remember yes (laughs) the uh um the uh technical term now is fullerene um and this this was discovered by actually simulating what might happen in outer space just Hmm. incredible high temperatures under pressure and then they they convincingly showed that carbon could form these these circular balls thought at the time to be the smallest possible now they're they're probably can be even smaller than that and they're purely made of carbon which is what you know we're made of right so it's not a foreign material right um and 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 the the way that their structure was you know, what's really cool about chemistry is you can look at something and you can make predictions. And, and they predicted early on, this is actually in the 90s, that um, these would be really good antioxidants. Hmm. And somebody um, patented it as a treatment and actually patented it for stroke, um, these fullerenes. Um, so the idea was really good. Um, it didn't progress beyond, as far as we know, the first phase of human studies. We're not even sure it went that far. Uh, it's all kind of secret. It didn't happen at Rice. It's all kind of secret, and we're not sure why. And this was, what, 10, 20 years ago? Or 30 years? It was in the mid-90s. Oh, okay. Mid-90s. Um, so one of the issues may have been that they don't dissolve well in blood and maybe they stick around in tissue too long. And so, so the rice chemists set about to design or to develop ones that would, from the same starting material, but would actually probably be more compatible with, with a, a, a human. Um, and that's what I saw. That's the, the talk that I, I came into it at that point. Um, and 
Um, and that's what we've done since then. So we took those materials. Um, I can contribute, you know, what design would make them work best, what size they need to be, you know, where they need to distribute. Um, fortunately, I can look at it too with a chemistry knowledge and sort of understand it, you know, understand it to the extent that, that make that kind of contribution. Um, and also where, they, where they're needed, you know, where would we need something like this? And so that's what we're doing. We're working in carbon um, nanomedicine to develop treatments for um, various diseases that involve oxidative stress. Um, so I'm reading a little bit into the story, but if we were going to do the movie about you and you were, we had the scene where you're at this lecture at Rice and you start to see what's happening. Is this where the, the music gets real dramatic and your eyes get really big and you're, Eureka! Like it just all comes kind of comes together and you go, I know what this can do. Hovering around. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, beautiful mind. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. If you look at my notes, they're like, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's, awesome. that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, it, it 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 was so phenomenal that I actually worried it was too strong because, like I said, you use radicals ah. in normal function. Right, right. So is this going to wipe that out too? Right, um, right. Almost like an antibiotic uh, is going to kill the other bio parts, right? right? Ah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay. But if anything could work then then I thought these would and so we we do the basic science you know NIH funds it we've done stroke we traumatic brain injury has a similar um, problem with radicals and they work they work better than anything that that I've ever seen wow. and they work late mm. so you can give them you know, in an animal model of stroke, you can give them at a realistic time when a patient would come. And the doctor, yeah. You know, when you look back at some of these failed drugs, they were pre-treating them. Yes. Um, yes, I see. You know, they were showing kind of in theory that it works, but not in the sense. And I think that's where being a stroke neurologist you know, I can dismiss those studies. They're just not going to be, they're, that's not ever going to happen. I mean, yeah, I guess if there's a pill and everybody took it just in case you had a stroke, but, you know, you still need pretty high levels. I mean, these things need to be injected. So that's maybe what might happen in the future or preventative. But at this point, um, you know, that's not realistic. And, and so, um, so they work. They work wow. incredibly well. And if, if, if I understood this, and this might only be one scenario, I understand that, but if you kind of pull the clot out, either with a device or you otherwise dissolve it, is that the point where we'd want your injection to be able to get rid of all the excessive stuff? Is that about right? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. You, you, you saw that perfectly. Okay, great. Right. Because you're, you're now there. And so if you can do the catheter or give the clot busting drug, you can give this drug. Great. Because you're there. Right, right, right. You're already yeah. You I like that. There, yeah. you can't you're give set it. Set up. You're ready to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, you say that it's been very successful, and so that you're, and that's with in animals, correct? Right. Okay. So animals and cells. We do as much cell work as possible. So in cells, we can give it hour, two hours later when we give some kind of, you know, injury, and and um, 
Uh, so here's the irony, and here's the, here's the sad thing, is that um, it's virtually impossible to find people that will fund the commercialization of a drug for a disease like stroke or traumatic brain injury. After all those failures to convince people to put, you know, the tens, if not hundreds of million dollars into it, um, it's just not going to happen. And Is that why, because of the failures, they've been to Vegas already and they lost and they said, I, I'm not going to play that game anymore? Is that it? Yes, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, so there was so much enthusiasm, I mean, not just antioxidant drugs. There's a, you know, dozens of, right. there's dozens of things that happen in this injured tissue. Molecules are released, some are consumed, you know, the lots of different approaches. Um, all of them failed. And so it's not just this. Um, and probably for similar reasons, the drugs just aren't that strong. I mean, this is a, this is a pretty overwhelming event. Um, and so, so that's not a good strategy. And, and we knew that, I mean, you still talk a little bit, but pretty much, you know, no, you won't find investors, at least in the States. Um, you know, some smaller countries have expressed some interest, but at least in the States for stroke and, and trauma. You would think that with something like stroke that impacts, I mean, quite a few number of people, not just in our country, but in the world, you would think that people would want to fix those problems, but because it's failed in the past, people are reluctant, and which to me just sounds completely backwards. <laughs> They're reluctant, and what they know now is that these early, you know, they didn't go to these big expensive trials blindly. Mm -hmm. They did them in earlier, smaller studies. And maybe a third or more looked promising to them. So the initial amount of money they would spend wasn't in the hundreds of millions. Um, but, but what happened is then they went to these larger studies and they were negative and they were probably negative because these diseases are so complex. I mean, no stroke is the same. You know, the patient's different. They may have bad diabetes or may not have diabetes at all. They may have, you know, bad uncontrolled high blood pressure or good controlled. You know, they're, they're so heterogeneous that in a little study, you may just have a, ch by chance, Right, a less sick group that got the drug, and so they look like they got better from the drug, and so they know that now that you're going to have to do a huge study for all these things to balance out, and they're just not going to spend the money at this. So they they know even if the early one is positive, it's not going to convince them. It's right. just not going to convince them to do that. So is that maybe a contributor to why these things take so long to progress? Is it, you know, instead of, you know, getting one investor or somebody to, to fund the research, you're kind of having to like get some money, do some research, money runs out, find more money, continue the research. Like, are you just, I mean, are you just kind of stop, stop, start, stop, start with, with the research? Well, yes, you would definitely stop and mostly stop start and mostly stop in that in that scenario and so what we do now is take a different scenario you know we all want 
to, you know, have some beneficial effect for this disease that affects, you know, so many people. Like you said, the impact is so huge, you would think that, um, that there would be good motivation, and there is, but you just have to take a different, a different approach. And so the approach that, that is most popular now is to do something that the, um, that the FDA has, has also realized is a problem, is that a s diseases that don't affect a lot of people will never generate enough revenue to um, motivate or even so that a company can afford to do the research because they have to recoup that somewhere. And if there are only a few thousand people that have the disease, that's why you see, you know, million dollar drugs when they first come out because, you know, there were a hundred people, you might, you know, it might've cost a billion dollars to make that. Right. Yeah. So, so they called orphan diseases. And so the strategy is to find something that has a similar action and study that. And the FDA actually facilitates it. Join us next time when Dr. Ken reveals more about the orphan disease financing strategy.